That's on page 1061 of your pew Bible. And after we've read from God's holy word, we'll sing in response all five stanzas of hymn 30. Matthew 27, where the word of our God speaks to us as follows. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that impostor said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This morning I may proclaim to you the word of the Lord as we find it in Matthew 28, the verses 11 through 15. Matthew 28, beginning at verse 11, where our text reads... While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. In response to the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing together hymn 37.
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps you've read the 18th century novel Robinson Crusoe by the Englishman Daniel Defoe. Well, Defoe also wrote poems, one of them called The True Born Englishman. He starts out the main section with these words, wherever God erects a house of prayer, the devil always builds a chapel there. Well, how true these words are also of our text. The first people to see the Lord Jesus on Easter morning are women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. They had first met an angel of the Lord at the empty tomb who said, Don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen as he said. The women leave quickly and with fear and great joy to go looking for the disciples. But on their way, who else do they meet but Jesus himself? He says to them, Don't be afraid. And then he sends them on a mission. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. But at the same time, while they were going, there is a counter mission that is launched. Some of the guard at the tomb head into the city, and they have their story to pass on. But it's one that's going to be twisted and distorted at an emergency meeting of the Sanhedrin. So at the resurrection, we see the forging of two missions, the women to the church and the soldiers to the Sanhedrin. In other words, there's the mission of Christ and the counter mission of Satan. There's an attempt to advance the gospel and another to pervert that gospel. Wherever God erects a house of prayer, the devil always builds a chapel there. What we are seeing here, brothers and sisters, is nothing less than the continuation of the enmity that God had declared in paradise would be there between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Satan had been dealt the definitive blow at Golgotha. He was defeated but he's not annihilated. War against Jesus and his people didn't end with Jesus' death. And so, yes, enmity will continue. The counter-mission follows the mission, the light of the gospel like a shadow. The truth stands alongside the lie, and the two are, of course, opposed to each other. But greater is the truth, and it shall prevail. That's what we see this morning, as the very attempt at a resurrection cover-up shows that the truth is more powerful than the lie. So I proclaim to you this word of the Lord. The Jewish leaders are confronted with the truth of Christ's resurrection, and we see three things emerging in our text. The facts reported the truth distorted, and then the lie in the third place promoted. 
So the leaders of God's people are confronted with the truth of the resurrection of the Christ. We see the truth reported, the facts reported, the truth distorted, and the lie promoted. Well, on the Sabbath day, the day before the resurrection, when Jesus' body is lying in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, the chief priests and Pharisees go to Pilate. Now, these are the same people who we heard on Good Friday had mocked, taunted, and tempted the Lord Jesus on the cross. They said he was powerless to save himself. But beneath that gruff exterior, they're a little unsettled. That's why they went to Pilate himself. Matthew 27, verse 63, they said to him, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. And that's remarkable. For what do we know about Jesus' very own disciples, as well as the women at the tomb? Even though they had heard Jesus say more than once that he would be killed and later, three days later rise again, they didn't believe it. Or at least they didn't take him seriously or they forgot it altogether. The only people who remember his words are Jesus' enemies. Now whether or not they believed him is a different story. They would never admit to that. And they cover it up by calling him an imposter. Still, they have this nagging feeling. They would have probably remembered some of his mighty deeds, maybe even how he raised the dead, Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, the young man from Nain. So they figured, who knows what can happen with this Jesus? Even after they have died, after he died, rather, they are still thinking about him. And they're afraid. And so they get to work on the Sabbath day. Though they should have gathered before the Lord God alone on the Sabbath, they gather instead before Pilate. They were prepared to break the covenant law in order to ensure that Jesus of Nazareth would remain buried in Joseph's grave. They asked Pilate for a guard to secure the tomb, lest his disciples go and steal the body and claim that he is risen, and the last fraud will be worse than the first, they say. So the very people who thought that Jesus was a fraud, a deceiver, set out on their own fraudulent activity. Pilate says, sure, go ahead. He's rather sick and tired of the whole business. Verse 65, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. Now, this makes it sound as if they had their own guard, temple police, but it can also be translated as a command. Have your own guard, which is probably what's going on. He's giving to them a Roman guard of soldiers, and we know that because in our text, these soldiers are afraid of what Pilate might think of their failed efforts. So Pilate gives to them a contingent of his own soldiers, professionals, veterans, tough guys. We don't know how many. 
but you can be sure that if anything, it was more than usual. Why? These Jewish leaders want to make absolutely sure that the tomb stays guarded and shut. And so on the Sabbath day, the guard is posted, tomb is sealed, no one's getting in, no one's getting out. Maybe now the Jewish leaders can finally relax. Well, while they maybe thought that the whole affair was taken care of, these tough guards are in for quite a ride. The next day, first day of the week, in the early hours before dawn, while these men stood watch, there was a violent earthquake, and an angel of the Lord comes down from heaven, and with his mighty power rolls away the stone, and he sits on it. Now those big, burly soldiers, they're shaken with fear. 28 verse 4 says, they became like dead men. They are petrified, paralyzed. When they come to their senses, they have to decide on a course of action, which is where our text starts. While they were going, that is, while Jesus was on his way to Galilee, and the women on their resurrection mission to find the disciples, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Only some go, it says. Maybe the others stayed. Maybe they fled in all sorts of directions. But a report has to be made to the authorities. So some go to the chief priests. Why don't they go to Pilate? Because these soldiers had, put, had been put under the direct supervision of the Sanhedrin. And so to the chief priests they go, who would also have known more things about Jesus than Pilate. They go to them, because now everything needs to be made known. They have to report. And that's what happens. Matthew says that these guards told the chief priest all that had taken place. They left nothing out of their report. They don't share some story about a ghost, even though they were scared out of their minds, but they give the truth, the whole truth. Probably sounded something like this. Look, we were standing guard as you told us to, but early this morning, two women showed up at the site. But that's just the beginning. Suddenly there was this huge earthquake and down from the heavens appeared this brilliant figure with a face like lightning and clothes white like snow. He came and he rolled away the stone that had been sealed and then he sat upon it as though it were his throne, as though he were daring us to try and roll it back. We and the other guards with us were powerless to stop him we couldn't move. We were shell-shocked. We became like dead men. Something miraculous has obviously happened. When we got our wits about us, we saw that the open tomb was empty. So this Jesus who was in there, he's gone. He's somehow come back from the dead. 
Now, just how do you think these chief priests received this story? You think they doubted? Like, give us a break. That's just a bunch of nonsense you're talking about. Uh-uh. Chief priests knew their Bible. So when they hear about this brilliant figure with a face like lightning and clothing as white as snow, they know what the guards are talking about. They were familiar with Old Testament descriptions of the angel of God. Now, they were hearing that the words of Christ that they never expected to come true did come true. They become the first to hear the gospel of the resurrection. Not the disciples, not Pilate, but the priests and the elders. The Lord God in heaven makes sure that these men are confronted with the fact of the resurrection of Christ in every detail as much as the guards could. And God does this to help bring them to their senses, come to terms with the truth and to confess it. Yes, to admit first and foremost that they as leaders of God's people put an innocent man of God, the Christ, to death. And then to share with the people the truth of the resurrection. The chief priests know full well that this is something deeply significant because they called together a quick meeting of the Sanhedrin early in the morning. Now they had been given the very sign of Jonah that Jesus promised them when they had demanded a sign. The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So they had been told what, it, what would happen. Now they're confronted with the fulfillment of the promise. Notice then, that the Lord God has not given up on these leaders just yet. Though they hounded Christ in his ministry, though they handed him over to death, and though they tempted and tormented him on the cross, God makes yet another appeal to them to come to believe the truth. He confronts them with the facts clearly reported. God is gracious. Through the constant appeal of his word, also today, he wants his chosen people to know him. He wants us also today to know the risen Christ and his story. His resurrection has been reported also for your benefit. You know the truth. But what's the response supposed to be? Acceptance. Belief. It's not what happens next in our text, unfortunately. And so we see the truth distorted. We read in verse 12 that these chief priests assembled with the elders. This is an impromptu, unscheduled, hasty meeting early in the morning of the Jewish council. It doesn't say whether the scribes were also there, but you can be sure that as many members of the council as possible were present. They have to act quickly, because very soon Jesus' disciples are going to hear the news, and then who knows how fast the truth is going to spread. 
And so the shepherds of the flock of God gather together, and they take counsel. They debate and discuss their options quickly. Of course, this was a prime opportunity for them to say to each other, look, this is all proof that we have dealt unjustly with the servant of the Lord, and we must now repent and report to the people the truth. That's what they should have done. But in addition to repent and report, they had two other options. Discredit the soldier's story or distort it. These leaders are not dumb in some ways. They know it's virtually impossible for them to discredit the story because the tomb is obviously empty. And so they believe the story needs to be altered. Let's admit that the tomb is empty, but let's fabricate a story as to how it became empty. Let's tell the guards to tell the people his disciples came by night and they stole the body while we were asleep. That's a simple distortion of the truth. They are falsifying information, cooking up an account. They're looking to spread a lie. It would have been one thing for them to keep silent. Let the story get out and let the people come to their own interpretation of the soldier's experience. But it's an altogether different matter to twist the truth. But of course, it's not that easy to do this. These soldiers would never want to share this as a version of what happened. It's not true, and worse, it incriminates them. Now guess what? We fell asleep on the job and some guys, some men robbed us blind. That was a serious breach of a guard's duty. To admit to it is to admit to a huge failure. And what's worse, it would put them on the chopping block. This was one of the most severe offenses a Roman guard could commit while occupying foreign territory. If Pilate gets to hear of it, they're done, executed. You remember what Herod did to the soldiers who were supposed to guard the apostle Peter? An angel of the Lord had freed Peter in the night. And then after Herod, during the day, searched for Peter unsuccessfully, he examined the soldiers and put them to death. Acts 12, 19. Is Pilate going to do any different? It is bad precedent to let a soldier, careless in his duty, get away with it. And so not only does the Sanhedrin distort the truth and cook up a bogus story, But they also say, let's make it worth the soldier's while to spread this around. They bribe them. When verse 12 says that they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, it's a large sum of silver money. And this is now then the second time in the narrative that silver money is being used as a bribe. The first time was when the chief priests and elders, same people, put or paid Judas 30 pieces of silver to hand over Jesus. And they had also previously sought false testimony 
to convict Jesus. Nothing has changed in their hearts. The death and now resurrection of Christ don't convict them of their guilt. They pay a large wad of cash to distort the truth. And again, just like with Judas, the money is going to come from no less than the temple treasury. It's the very money that God's people have been giving for sacrificial service in the temple is now being used to twist the truth of the greatest sacrifice ever made. And then what if Pilate gets to hear about this lie about these soldiers? Well, the chief priests and elders, they'll look after that. Verse 14, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him, keep you out of trouble. It looks like even the governor can be bought. So this series of scams develops. A lie, a bribe, another bribe, and a cover. The enemies of the gospel here are both lying leadership and much money. The chief priests and the elders are in cahoots with the secular ruler Pilate to prevent the survival or success of Jesus Christ's ministry. And that makes it no different from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, where Herod, after hearing of the birth of the king of the Jews, works with the scribes and chief priests to kill him. And so to prevent even the start of his ministry. Nothing but murderous lies in the hearts of the leadership with a continual lust for more evil. They will do anything to twist the truth about Jesus and suppress it. Well, no doubt, those soldiers go on their merry way. They've got this handsome sum of money now, and they're off the hook for their failure. But what about this bogus story that they're now supposed to share with others? I think you and I can see very quickly that it really doesn't hold a whole lot of water at all. Who in their right mind is going to believe them? For if these soldiers were sleeping, how do they know that it was Christ's disciples who took the body? The witness of sleeping people has little value. And even more, wouldn't the rolling aside of the sealed stone have made enough noise to wake up the soldiers? Does the Sanhedrin really believe that people are going to accept this lie? That the disciples of Jesus apparently thought nothing of trying their luck and sneaking around these big burly guards in order to rob the tomb. It's nonsense. But that's the point. The greatest deception of all is self-deception. It's easy to believe what you so desperately want to believe. Tell a lie often enough, others will believe it. You yourself maybe as well. Nevertheless, Jesus Christ is still very much in the picture. 
front and center even. He fills up the Sanhedrin's agenda even after he was pronounced dead. Because his work, you see, will always be need, need to be reckoned with one way or another. Yes, the Jewish people and the whole world will be confronted with the claim of the risen Son of God, Jesus Christ. The facts bear it out. No one can avoid him. He will never get off the agenda. Sadly, though, so many believe a false version of Christ or deny him altogether. This is what happens in our text as well. Truth distorted becomes then the lie promoted, which is our final point. We read in verse 15 of our text, so they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. These soldiers get a move on it. And they go throughout Jerusalem to tell the people their twisted version of the events of that morning. The story spreads like wildfire. You can be assured that if this were the 21st century, these guards would get on their mobile phones and post the story all over social media, and fire off a mass email to everyone in their contacts list with this as the subject line. The disciples of Jesus have stolen the body. The counter mission of, of Satan is in full bloom. Before the disciples even get a chance to accept and proclaim the truth, calls to mind the parable of the weeds, Matthew 13. There were two sowings. A man sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. In explaining that parable, Jesus said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. These two sowings were mixed in the world and even in the kingdom of the Son of Man himself. Wherever God erects a house of prayer, the devil always builds a chapel there. For yes, as our text says, this story of a grave robbery has been widely spread among the Jews to this day. Matthew himself is probably referring here to a span of some 40 years' time. This is, the preaching that is happening, in, the, in other words, has been disobedient preaching. It's preaching that strikes against divine orders and is done purely because it seems right in one's own eyes or because one is paid a handsome sum to preach that message. Well, in these roughly 40 years' time between the resurrection and Matthew's recording of the fact and these words, many other things happened that bore out the truth of the resurrection. Christ showed himself to many people after his resurrection. He ascended in triumph. 
poured out the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. There were signs and wonders performed by the apostles in Jesus' name. And churches were instituted throughout the Mediterranean world in short order. The gospel of the resurrection did go out. And even though the lie was also promoted, not all the Jews accepted it. By the grace of God, many of them did accept the true account. You need only to read the book of Acts to see that unfold. The apostles always started where? In the local synagogue, preaching there first. But sadly, the gospel was also met with a whole lot of resistance. And that brought a whole lot of pain to the, to the Apostle Paul. He says in Romans 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The people of the old and abolished covenant have bought into the lie for the most part. And this brought sorrow also to Matthew. It's not like he takes huge delight in recording the event of our text. Matthew's main purpose in writing his gospel account was to show the Jews that Jesus of Nazareth really was the Messiah. And so he has to include also this story to show how the lie about Easter came into being. He wants Jewish readers to see how their own leaders distorted the truth because he wants at the same time to appeal to Israel to consider the truth, believe it. So it's then not only the Jewish leaders that the Lord confronts, but then also the Jewish people with the truth of the resurrection. And it's still unfortunately today that the lie is promoted. And that doesn't happen merely among the Jews. The countermission of Satan happens within so-called Christian churches as well. And it's not so much a belief that the body was stolen. No, it's even worse than what the chief priests and the elders did. For they at least had to acknowledge that Christ had risen, though they covered it up. But today, many Christians deny the resurrection altogether. And so they have to flail around in desperation for some alternative explanation. They say, you can't explain it, and for that matter, you don't need to. It's not really all that crucial to believe and confess that Christ actually rose. No, the resurrection for them is nothing more than a symbol that Jesus lives on in our hearts. His teachings, his selfless example are still with us. So yes, his grave is vacant, but a physical resurrection, a living Lord who's, who reigns supreme in the heavens, nah, it can't be. 
this is what happens when you don't familiarize yourself with the real facts of the scriptures. This is what happens also when office bearers withhold the truth from God's people, making it very hard for the people to unmask the lies of their leaders. Well, it makes you question whether a church that denies the resurrection of Christ can even be called a church at all. And so we may be so thankful here to God that he has opened our hearts to believe the resurrection of Christ, that it really happened. Thankful that that gospel is preached here. Yes, we have God to thank. For though this early morning countermission of Satan started in earnest, it could not and it cannot overpower the mission of the church. That same day, in the evening, there was another meeting. Christ appeared to declare his peace to all who love him and to send out his disciples with the truth to proclaim the glorious gospel of salvation. And that gospel is still being preached today. And you and I benefit from it. We benefit from the powerful message of the truth of the resurrection. The risen Christ changes our lives. The message of Easter is that we live by the apostolic word which Christ has given to the church. Christ has also raised us up from the dead through his word and Holy Spirit. And so even though there is widespread acceptance of the lie, let there also be widespread acceptance of the truth, the only truth that sets you free. The resurrection of Christ. Let's be prepared to defend it argue for it, and let us then also be sure that we are allowing it to blow like a fresh spring breeze through our own lives, our own actions, and thoughts and words. Let your life proclaim Christ's resurrection and his resurrection power. Amen.